This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight presents... This is Frank's Conspiracy Hour. Welcome to The Other Side of Midnight. Well, I am very pleased to tell you that uh, we are one of the most listened to overnight radio shows in the nation. In city after city where we're airing, we are just dominant in the ratings. Now, when you think of overnight radio, what do you think of? I'm not talking about late night radio. Late night radio could mean people like Larry King or Alan Combs. I'm talking about overnight radio, a time when every normal right thinking person is asleep. Well, I'll tell you what I have come to think of, especially on the AM band, but even on FM from time to time. The defining characteristic of late night radio going back, I think, to the days of Long John Neville has been exploration of conspiracy theories. Art Bell did it. George Norrie does it. Long John Neville was a master of it. And we have spent a fair amount of time having guests on this program and having callers promote or explain, debate, question, give commentary on one conspiracy theory or another. Some come across as pretty credible. Others, I think you have to be a total lunatic to uh, to believe. But that's the thing about this show. I like to think we present everything in a judgment-free area and we see where the facts go. Well, a gentleman who has been exploring a number of these conspiracy theories for a long time and has developed a reputation as something of a conspiracy debunker with theory after theory, especially as it relates to contrails, something I know almost nothing about, but something that callers constantly call about and people frequently write to me about, is Mick West. Mick West is a writer, an investigator, a coder, and the author of the book Escaping... The rabbit hole. Mick, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining me. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Mick, what sparked your interest in being, let's call it, a, a conspiracy skeptic? How'd you get started in this? It actually started a very long time ago. Uh, and it actually started with my very first kind of forays into the internet before the internet was the internet. I was uh, discussing things on bulletin boards where you had to use a dial-up modem to get into them and you, you wouldn't get a reply from someone until the next day. But even back then, I kind of enjoyed kind of the back and forth of just kind of exchanging ideas with people. And then kind of over the years, I just got more and more interested in stuff like uh, science and uh, pseudoscience. And I enjoyed kind of explaining uh, both science and explaining where pseudoscience goes wrong. And then that just kind of led into various different topics one of which was the chemtrails conspiracy theory. So I've uh, heard the term chemtrails for years. I've also heard the term 
contrails for years. I, I hear uh, some of the audience actually shouting at their radios right now, saying, mm-hmm. what do you mean you've heard the term? They've been uh, destroying our lives for decades now. But for people that are a little less familiar with the concept of either contrails or chemtrails, what are they? Are they the same thing? And explain to the uninitiated what the theory behind them is. Well, a contrail is something that's been observed for like a really long time. It is basically uh, the trail that you sometimes see uh, left behind planes, high, high altitude planes when they're flying in the sky. They'll sometimes leave a trail behind them. And that is actually a condensation trail. It's essentially the same as uh, when you breathe out on a cold day or if it's really cold and you look at your car exhaust, you'll see this kind of little cloud formed. And a contrail is actually just a type of cloud. If you look it up in the, the World Meteorological uh, Organization, it's listed as a type of cloud. It's called uh, Cirrus homogenitus, which is a man-made cirrus cloud. So all it is, a contrail, is a cloud, that trail behind a plane. But a chemtrail is supposedly a trail left behind a plane that contains uh, chemicals that have been added, chemicals other than the normal things you would find in jet exhaust. So the idea there is that someone, the government or the people in charge, are uh, spraying us with some kind of chemical or they're spraying chemicals for some kind of nefarious purpose. And people confuse the two things. So we have contrails, which are a normal thing. But then people look up and they see contrails and they don't really understand exactly what they're looking at. They might not look exactly as they remember them or they're told they might look different. And they start thinking that what they're looking at is actually these these chemtrails, these secretly sprayed trails, when actually they're just looking at contrails. Oh, we're going to get to the, the truth about chemtrails in just a moment. But for the people that have been talking about this or legitimately concerned about it over the years, what is the thought about what those chemicals might be and what the rationale is for why those chemicals are being sprayed into the clouds or into the air? Well, the the theory started back in the late 90s, and the idea back then was that uh, it, it was this new type of jet fuel that was being used, JP-8, and the, there was concern that it might be harmful to people's health. And, you know, whenever people get concerned about, like, health effects of things, like, you know, theories uh, are, are swift to follow. So people started making, like, theories about, like, what are these trails that are planes leaving behind? Is it the, the JP-8 jet fuel? And that kind of morphed over the years into, like, oh, the government is spraying us with, with chemicals to, to do to like make us weaker and spread germs or to to like spread some kind of nanorobots or something like that. But the the more common and the, the more modern version of the theory is that the spraying is being done to try to control the climate and try to control the weather. Some kind of uh, what they call geoengineering, where you actually try to change the climate of the planet. So the idea there is that they're, in theory, spraying things secretly to try to uh, either make global warming worse or to make it better, depending on which version of the uh, the theory you, you listen to. We're talking with Mick West. His book is Escaping the Rabbit Hole. You can learn more about him uh, by going to his website, mickwest.com, and that links you to all the other websites that, uh, that he's involved with, metabunk.org, contrailscience.com, a whole bunch of others as well. But mickwest.com, standard spelling of Mick, standard spelling of West, that'll be your guide to 
all things Mick West related. Now, Mick, is it really such a crazy idea uh, to think that uh, either the government or private industry might be taking some sort of shortcuts for some purpose or another that lead to deleterious effects on people's health? We've seen private businesses uh, like uh, Texaco in Ecuador, for instance, um, not really have much of a regard for people's health or the environment if it means um, pursuing the bottom line of what they want to pursue. We've seen this with certain types of gasoline over the years. It's one of the reasons leaded gasoline's not there. We've seen it with certain types of pesticides over the years. Is it really crazy to think of jet fuel may both cause planes to go faster, but at the same time do a lot of damage to the public or the environment? I don't think it's uh, really crazy because, like you said, things like this have uh, happened before. You know, pollution is an issue and industry likes to cover up pollution because they don't want to be regulated. They make more money if they're, they're allowed to, to pollute. But, you know, we have pretty uh, strict laws now when it comes to that, We're like with the Clean Air Act, uh, which was, you know, several decades ago now. And there's a lot of regulation of things like the, the composition of jet fuel. And jet engines themselves are very kind of uh, fiddly in the way that they work. It's, it's kind of difficult to actually add things to jet fuel to make it do anything else. But really, you've got to look at the, what is the actual evidence for this. It's all very well saying, well, it sounds like something that the government would do. But is there actually any evidence that they're doing it? And the most common bit of evidence people point at is just these these trails, which they think don't look like contrails. When in fact, they actually do. They look pretty, well, they, they are. They are exactly the same as contrails because they are, in fact, contrails. And it's just it's one of those things where if you've not looked at something in depth before and then you stare at it and you stare at it for a long time, it kind of looks weird because you've never really examined it before. And I think that's a lot of what's actually going on. People are naturally suspicious of, of, of industry and people in power, and that's fine. But then they add on to that by like listening to this chemtrails conspiracy theory and starting to buy into the things like, you know, this, this trail shouldn't look like this or this trail shouldn't do that, when really the trails are just doing exactly what they've done uh, ever since planes were were able to fly high enough to make them. So what's the deal? Uh, what does the evidence suggest and what does your research suggest is the truth behind chemtrails? Uh, well, the truth really is that there's no evidence that the government is spraying anything on us secretly. Now, the government actually sprays things on us deliberately now and then. They, they, they do things for uh, mosquito abatement, for example. So they're actually kind of spraying a, a toxin out of the back of a plane uh, there's things like cloud seeding, which is a real thing. This is actually weather uh, weather modification is a real thing that's been done quite openly since the 1950s, and uh, it but is very different to the chemtrail theory because chemtrails are all about these these trails that are left behind planes high in the sky. But weather modification is just something that is done at a low altitude using small planes, and it doesn't even leave a trail. It's something that you do. You just spray this silver iodide onto a, a cloud. So the actual evidence that people uh, give to support the theory, and there's a lot of it. There's, you know, it's one of these things like, you know, say, the moon landing hoax. There's endless, endless pages of, of different types of uh, supposed evidence. None of it actually stands up. You know, I've spent many, many years looking at all these claims of evidence, and I've pretty much explained every single one of them. So it sounds like there is almost no evidence for the chemtrail conspiracy, the, based on what you're saying and what you've put on your website here. 
This is true, but I mean, on the other hand, you could say there's a lot because you, you, the, it only resolves to nothing if you're aware of what the, the explanations are, the mm-hmm. debunks. So for someone new to the theory, they're going to come in and they're going to like say, oh, well, you know, contrails never persisted. Uh, they didn't. They used to fade away. And then I will show them some some explanation of that. I'll show them like these old photos and books on weather. And then they'll move to the next thing. They'll say, well, look about look at these photos of barrels. Uh, obviously, that's something that's being used for spraying. Or, or look at these chemical tests. You know, people have been testing their soil or their, their, their air or their water, and it shows these certain results. Then I'll, then I'll explain that. And then you know, they'll say, oh, but what about these patents? What about these government discussions of geoengineering? You know, what about these, these whistleblowers? Why are these, these, these planes flying in grids in the sky? And there's this endless, endless like, claims of evidence that have been repeated like, basically since uh, like about 20 years ago, the same things have been coming up over and over again. I've been explaining them to people and people go, oh, yeah. But then a new set of people come along, they discover the claims and it takes takes them a while to actually discover that these things have all been debunked. And so we go on round and round. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Well, that that leads me to my next question. Why do you have to keep uh, debunking the same theories over the course mm-hmm. of years? I mean, w- once Isaac Newton kind of explained gravity with the apple, I think gravity was pretty much settled. Why, once you've debunked the chemtrail issue, do you need to keep going ahead and debunking it five years later, ten years later? Why do certain conspiracy theories, including this one, sort of go away? or at least retreat and then seem to come back into the forefront? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I actually wrote an article on that, on that subject uh, called it Skeptical Recurrence and Decay. And what tends to happen is that uh, the conspiracy theories recur. They happen over and over again because conspiracy theories are fun. They're really interesting and they're very engaging and very, uh, they, they, they're, kind of, you know, they're, they're sexy to, to, to think about. But... Uh, the debunkings, they tend to kind of decay over the years. And you get things like uh, link rot, where if you go to a site and you you, you see that half the pictures are missing or the, you click on a link and it doesn't work. Uh, and so unless you actually keep actively renewing these these debunking sites like like I've been trying to do, then a new version of the chemtrails conspiracy theory will just pop up fresh and new, like some new uh, conspiracy theory spreader will, will start spreading it. And it will be new to a whole bunch of people. And since they are in a world where they're, they're consuming that type of content, they're not going to immediately find uh, my explanations of it. And when they do a search, they'll, they'll find like mainstream uh, articles and they'll, they'll, they'll say, oh, obviously that's part of the cover-up. And so they, they'll, they'll ignore those and they don't really address the, the particular claims anyway. So it's, it's a, a real challenge to actually kind of keep up with the, uh, the continual recurrence of conspiracy theories like this.
You have a, a very interesting book. I haven't read it yet, but I'm looking forward to, to reading it. It's called Escaping the Rabbit Hole, How to Debunk Conspiracy Theories Using Facts, Logic, and Respect. And this is one of the things that uh, really attracted me to you as a personality, because I would find sometimes when I'm t- talking about these things with friends, family members, or strangers, I try to uh, have these conversations with respect. And a lot of times the people that are persistent in whatever conspiracy theory we're talking about. Maybe it's uh, 9-11 was an inside job. Maybe it's uh, the earth is flat. Maybe it's something else. They are just almost dug in to these certain theories, whatever the case may be, almost like a religion. Uh, They're not really Mm -hmm. terribly interested in uh, instance after instance about learning the truth. They're interested in evangelizing and convincing you why the earth is flat or uh, we blew up the World Trade Center ourselves or something along those lines. Uh, Tell me about this book, Escaping the Rabbit Hole, and more important for people listening to us right now, if they have family members, friends that are into Pizzagate, QAnon, whatever the case may be, how do they have conversations with, uh, with friends, loved ones, or strangers in a way that's respectful and that, uh, that uses facts and logic? Yeah, the book uh, kind of came about as a result of you know, my interest in this this topic and the interactions that I had with with uh, a variety of people. Kind of the the backbone of the book is a series of interviews that I do with people who were once some kind of conspiracy theorist and eventually got out of it. And some of these people were really really deep. You know, the type of people where they would, you know, if you tell them one thing, they'll, they'll throw 10 things back in your face. And if you, if you persist, they'll start accusing you of being like a government agent. And it's, it's, with a person like that, it seems almost impossible. I mean, in fact, it, it does seem impossible. But these are all people who did actually get out. So, you know, that's the first lesson is that there is hope. Even though it seems like it's impossible, it seems like you're making no progress, it does actually happen. Um, and then I kind of I give a three-step process, which is very, very simple. And the first step is maintaining effective communication, um, uh, maintaining an effective dialogue, essentially. The second step is supplying useful information. The third step is giving it time. Now, the most important step really is the first one, because if you don't have effective communication, if you don't have a clear dialogue with the person, then you're not going to get anywhere. If you're just throwing them debunks, if you're explaining things over and over again, you're not going to get anywhere because you're not really communicating with them. So the first step really is just to talk to them. And if they want to evangelize, you can talk about that. You can discuss the things they want to talk about because you've got to understand where they're coming from. And along with that, uh, you want them to understand where you are coming from. So you've got to kind of explain what your your situation is and try to try to ascertain how well they understand your situation. So you, you tell them like, you know, why you're concerned, like, you know, I'm concerned because you're spending so much time doing this and it doesn't seem to me that the evidence adds up. And you know, what do you think is uh, the best evidence or what do you, what actually got you into this or, but um, a very important part of establishing effective communication is establishing some kind of common ground. Uh, very often when you start talking to someone about something like this, it almost automatically falls into an adversarial discussion. Right. You start getting angry with the person or they start getting angry with you. 
And a lot of the time they will start getting angry with you by default because they expect you to be kind of on the offensive because they're used to people mocking their, their beliefs. You know, say there is a, a 9-11 truther or a QAnon person. They're used to being outsiders. They're used to being uh, ridiculed and mocked and attacked. So you've got to establish first that you are being respectful. You know, ask them about their beliefs without mocking their beliefs and try to gain some kind of understanding of them. And it's only when you've actually established that that you can kind of get to the next stage, which is kind of gently feeling around the possibility of supplying them with useful information. Try to find the what they believe in that you could possibly make a difference on uh, and then find things that you can tell them. There, uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Mick West. You can check out his book, Escaping the Rabbit Hole. It's available on Amazon. You can also go to his website, mickwest.com, for an explanation of uh, a lot of the issues that we're talking about. There are some conspiracy theories that I don't think are very credible, which I find very harmless. I mean, um, if you have 9,000 Sasquatch sightings, I mean, who really cares? What difference does that does that really make to anybody? There are theories that uh, that I find uh, quite harmful and quite scary. I mentioned QAnon, and look, we've seen uh, the 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 role that QAnon played in getting some people to storm the Capitol on January 6th, but really, there are so many other deeper conspiracy theories that are that go far beyond that. One that comes to mind is uh, is Holocaust denial, and one th- everybody listening to this has someone in their life that probably adheres to one wacky conspiracy theory or another. And this might be a loved one, a family member, a brother, a cousin, a brother-in-law, whatever the case may be. And a lot of times the person wants to maintain their relationship with that person. but And, and they what they do by extension is just not discuss that subject. They don't discuss the earth is flat, Holocaust denial, whatever the case may be, in order to still maintain harmony at the Thanksgiving table or uh, whatever social interaction we're we're talking about here. Uh, Two-part question, Mick. One, is that a self-defeating strategy? Should people engage with the folks in their lives that ascribe to very harmful conspiracy theories? Part, that's part one of the question. And uh, part two is what do you do if um, – well, let me begin with part one because part two, I guess, gets a little bit more complicated. Should people continue to engage with people in discussing XYZ conspiracy theory? Uh, you should, but you should only do it if it's going to be productive. If you know that like raising this subject is going to start a big argument, then it's not going to be very helpful. You've got to try to uh, get to it a different way. You've got to approach it from a different direction, or you've got to talk about something else. Like instead of talking about like Holocaust denial, you could you could you could talk about some. You could talk about pretty much anything. I mean, really, the the first thing you want to do is to establish some kind of dialogue with a person. And if you're estranged from them, then it could be anything. You could talk about football. But then you, you do want to kind of address the elephant in the room because they, they know that they have these beliefs and they know that you disagree with them. Uh, so you can gently kind of sidle up to it. You could perhaps even make a little joke about it because you have this shared understanding that you know, they believe something and you don't believe it. And if you feel like it's right, you can, you can make a little, a little joke about you know, their belief. Or you could just 
mention something that you think is similar. But you have to do it very, very carefully. And if they start getting angry, you know, if you feel like you can't actually talk them through that, then step back and don't, you know, don't worry about, uh, you know, having to address the issue. It will take time. And if you push it, it, it might end up taking more time. So slow but steady wins the race race when it comes to uh, discussing conspiracy theories. Talking with Mick West, and I appreciate you being so generous with your time late at night, Mick. I have hosted uh, just about every conspiracy theorist that there is, and not necessarily every person, but every conspiracy theory. We never went to the moon. Uh, We've talked about that. We've uh, talked about just about everything there is. And very, I will never uh, shout anyone down, never cut an interview short. The only time I ever cut an interview short was uh, I had a fellow on this program that maintained that the uh, children that were shot in the uh, Sandy Hook massacre weren't really shot and didn't really die. I I couldn't bring myself to continue the conversation. But what I've noticed is that a lot of folks that ascribe to one conspiracy theory or another, they are experts in one specific aspect of it doesn't matter how whacked out the conspiracy theory seems on its face they are really informed at least they sound informed about one or two specific aspects of it and then they sort of filibuster and bury you with information Mm -hmm. now most people listening to us right now they're not going to go home and become an expert in architecture and uh, and explosives in order to prove to their cousin that the uh, September 11th attacks were not an inside job. What do you suggest about how to talk to people who are who want to filibuster and talk to you for three hours about the boiling point of steel and jet fuel? Yeah, yeah. They usually have like a large number of things that they uh, they can re- reel out like that, and that's what we call uh, a gish gallop. There was a famous preacher called Gish who reeled out two hundred proofs for the existence of God every time someone uh, questioned him on it. But yeah, you don't want to go and try to knock down every single thing. What you want to try to do is find something they don't believe in. You know, find something about the conspiracy theory that they don't believe in. Say it's like nine eleven. You know, they perhaps believe that the uh, the twin towers were brought down by controlled demolition. But you know, if they believe that, then do they believe that a plane hits the Pentagon? So some people think that a cruise missile hit the Pentagon, and if they believe that, do they believe that uh, the planes were holograms? Find something that they don't believe in, and then kind of back that towards the things that they do believe in. Because what you're looking for here is an issue that's kind of on on the line between things they believe in and things they don't believe mm. in. Because uh, conspiracy theories exist on a spectrum. There's there's very banal, boring conspiracy theories like, you know, Big Pharma cheats in their test results. And then there's, you know, wacky, crazy conspiracy theories like King Charles is a, a reptile who eats babies. Right. Uh, and then there's things in between, which are like, you know, chemtrails and then things like uh, 9-11. And even 9-11 will have you know, more wacky theories, like some, like the, the simplest 9-11 theory will be that George Bush uh, let it happen. And the more complicated one would be that uh, laser beams from space blew up the towers and there were no planes. Uh, so you, you want to find kind of where they are on that spectrum. 
and everybody draws a line on the spectrum, and I call that the, the line of demarcation. It demarks between things they believe, things they don't believe. You want to find that region and focus on that region, and if possible, focus on one thing that is just right on the cusp of things that they, they believe or don't believe, and ask them, you know, why do you believe this but not this? Why, do you be- why don't you believe something that's just on the other side of the line? If you believe that uh, explosives were planted in the World Trade Center, why don't you believe that a cruise missile was used on the Pentagon? And you're getting them to think about mm. the justification for their beliefs. Because it's not just about what they believe, it's what they don't believe. And everybody draws the line somewhere. You know, you think crazy conspiracy theorists will believe anything, but there will be things that they don't believe. So if you ask them, why don't you believe this? you can often transfer that reason onto something that's a little bit further down the spectrum and get them to think about it, at least. Mick, you got to come back because uh, there's a lot of other things I want to ask you, but I uh, want to end with two two final things. One is, has there any conspiracy, th- has there ever been a conspiracy theory which started out essentially as a conspiracy theory that was later proven to be true? And if you look this up, uh, there are some people that point to one or another. As far as you're concerned, is there anything that started out as a conspiracy theory that came to be proven as fact? Not really, because they didn't really start out as full-blown conspiracy theories. It's not like there was something like where they you know, said we never went to the moon and then we found out that we never went to the moon. There are things that we discover later that were conspiracies, uh, but people weren't like theorizing them about them in the same way. So there really weren't conspiracies that were proved to be true, but that certainly conspiracies happen. You know, definitely, like there are people in power and in industry and in government who conspire to do things. You know, and we should be aware of that and we should be careful. But if something's a conspiracy theory, that generally means that it doesn't have very good evidence backing it up, and you want to start looking at the evidence. Lastly, one question that I ask every conspiracy theorist who's written a book, who's produced a documentary, who does uh, a radio show or a podcast about it. The one thing I always ask is, are you doing this to make money? Now, just as there's uh, money to be made uh, peddling uh, the XYZ conspiracy theory in many different forms, there are some skeptics in our audience right now, believe it or not, conspiratorial skeptics, who are saying that you're refusing to acknowledge the obvious truth about chemtrails or about anything else that you cover on your website simply because you've made a career for yourself as a conspiracy debunker. And if you acknowledge the truth behind XYZ conspiracy theory, then there goes your image as a conspiracy Mm -hmm. debunker. Address the skeptics in our audience who might be asking that question, Mick. I, I make very little money out of this. I, the only money I'm really making is from my book, and that's a few thousand dollars over like three years now, and a few a little bit of money from articles and TV appearances. But you know, I'm essentially retired. I'm a, I was a video game programmer. I, I was one of the co-creators of the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater video game. So I did very well back then, and I was able to retire. I don't, I don't need the money. So I'm doing this because I think it's important and because I enjoy doing it. And uh, that's really all there is to it. You know, I'm, I'm not in it for the money. Mick West, I very much appreciate the time. I hope we could talk again. Uh, certainly, yes. 
If you want to comment on any portion of my conversation with Mick West, agree, disagree, thoughts, questions, have at it. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. 